All right, cool. Well, let's do it. I'll go ahead and kick us off. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want, to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you go check them out at the show's link, that's hired.com slash adventures in Angular, you can get double their normal hiring bonus. So instead of $300, you get $600 for signing up at our link. That's hired.com slash adventures in Angular. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Ward Bell. Hello, everyone. Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have two special guests. We have Jeff Welpley. Hello, how's it going? And we also have Kashal Dave. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. So uh, do you guys want to introduce yourselves since you haven't been on the show for a while? So yeah, I'm the CTO of Scroll. It's a brand new startup. We've only been at it for about a year. Before that, I was at Foursquare. Before that, I was at Chartbeat. And before that, I was at Google. And way before that, I was at IBM. Uh, I've, seen it. I've worked in a lot of uh, monorepo code bases, so I have strong opinions about why they're awesome. Although I actually haven't had the experience of working in a lot of multi-repo situations, so curious to get some other perspectives too. All right. Cool. Yeah, you, Jeff. Yeah, so my name is Jeff Welpley. I'm the CTO of a small startup in Boston called Get Human that helps people with customer service problems. I've been on Adventures in Angular a couple times before. Uh, I always like to say all the best episodes, right? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I've also uh, been on a couple other podcasts before, uh, as well as in the open source community for a little while, author of a couple of repos on the a Google, develop, de, uh, Google Developer Expert. And I'm um, here today to talk about something I'm just really passionate about and something that I'm going to be uh, talking about um, in some upcoming conferences. Yeah, we have you coming to speak to us at Angular Dev Summit in September. And that's online, folks. So if you want to come and you want to watch his talk for free, just sign up, you get a ticket. Yep, definitely. I'm really looking forward to that. I think you've spoken at every Angular online conference I've put on. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, do you want to kind of give us the 10,000 foot view on this issue and, and just why people even think about this instead of just, I guess, doing what they always do? Yeah, definitely. And let me even preface the problem by, by stating how I came to the problem. Because for a long time, you know, I think I, well, I had worked at bigger companies in the past, but I moved back to Boston five years ago and, and spent a couple of years really just working by myself. Uh, you know, me and my other co-founder were just kind of hacking it out. And typically when you're working in like 
just one or two people team, you don't really have that many issues centered around dev process and coordinating changes between each other and, and trying to figure out the best, op most optimal way to organize your code. There's, there's some things that you deal with, but uh, most of the time you understand the entire code base because you're working on everything. But it gets to be a much different problem once you get to have a larger team, more people that you're working with. And you know, once we uh, hired more people after we raised money, uh, we had a team of eight developers working on the same code base. And then we just started running to issues where you know, in, in essence, everything started slowing down because of different overhead related to process that was needed in order to make sure that we got had quality changes, that there was no issues, and that people were able to get their changes in quickly. And really came down to something where there was like four major conditions that occurred where I, I when all four of these exist, then you really start feeling the pain, underlying pain of the problem that we're going to be talking about today. So the four things you know, are when you have kind of multiple code modules um, where there's different code modules that have some shared code. And then multiple team members, so different team members, they're trying to change that code at the same time and a high rate of change. So if you're not changing the code base, then it's not as big of a deal. But if you every single day are pushing in changes, um, that's where you start to feel this pain. And the last thing is where you actually care about trying to not lose develop individual developer productivity. Um, because you can certainly have your developers spend half the day with just process overhead. But if you want to set up a system where you can have all of these things and the developers are still able to produce at their, um, all close to their rate where they were, if they were just working by themselves, um, you basically have to spend a lot of time and thought around your developer processes and how you actually structure your code, you, how you physically set up and organize your entire code base. So I'm curious, how, how has everybody else done this? Like, how do you wind up organizing your code bases? So, I mean, I can jump in here. So when I worked at Google, uh, and I believe this is still true today, uh, everything was in a single uh, repository uh, for the most part. There, was, there were one or two exceptions for client code and I think maybe for some infrastructure things. But most of the time, all of the code was in one giant repo. And if you wanted to edit anything, all the changes went into a single place. And I think that actually worked pretty well. It allowed people to feel like they could change any of the code. It made it easy to make code-based-wide refactors and know if you were breaking anybody. Um, it made it easy to keep everybody in sync about the state of the code. You know, and I do think that there are sort of workflow and process things that you have to change in order to get that right. Um, probably the biggest one is trying to keep people from working in long-running branches because things start to diverge. But when I, we've done that, and you know that was the model at Foursquare too, um, and it's definitely the model we're using at Scroll, I think you can be really efficient. It feels pretty close to being a single developer where you can just kind of work on the code without thinking about where it lives or who owns it or if you have access or if you've checked it out or anything like that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the obvious well, not, nothing, nothing is obvious in this world. Let's just, so I'm going to take that word right <laughs> out of my, I'm going to scratch that word from my vocabulary. But um, those are certainly the, the list of benefits. But it, it feels like you're up against some things. Like take, take Google, for example, where, where I, last I looked, it's also all, well, here's Angular sitting in its own world. So there you go, <laughs> its own repo. But 
but a lot of it, uh, a lot, you're right. A lot of Google is still in one thing. And, um, now imagine that somebody does something. What's, what is the CI process across all the things? I mean, I'm only working in some little tiny corner of a project, right? Right. But if it's all one repo, uh, am I getting into master and how is it even possible to run all the CI across everything before I can get my branch cleared so that it could be rolled into master. What, what, how do you manage those <laughs> kinds of process? Cause at Google, I know what they do, but what do you do? Well, so I think the answer changes at different sizes, right? So at scroll now, and so for most of the time I was at Foursquare, you know, it was sufficient to really just run all the builds on every commit, you know, and again, I really believe in having people work close to master. I have sort of a long medium post about uh, that particular workflow. But, you know, you can land changes in master and, you know, if one of 10 builds turns green um, or if you just have one mega build that just co runs continuously, that's good enough up until you know, 30 or 40 developers probably. And then once you hit that size, there's a variety of build tools out there that you can use uh, to understand the structure of your code base. And once you've used one of these build tools that sort of declaratively indicates which artifacts depend on which libraries and, and what the full dependency tree is, you can build only the relevant CIs, right? So you can decide, hey, this change over in this corner actually only touches this binary or these tests. So like, let's just run those tests and see if those work. Uh, and you can get all the all the benefits of having like a self-contained repository while still kind of incidentally finding out if somebody you didn't realize depended on your code uh, actually is breaking as a result of your change. One, one thing that I, I like about the, the approach, just having everything in master, in fact, um, most of the projects that I've worked on, or I won't, I won't say most, but a number of them, we've just committed directly into master. And then essentially what we did is we would use feature flags to turn stuff on and off. So if it was experimental, it would still go into master, and then our CI would effectively run the different builds with the different feature flags, and that way you could see if what you did broke something that somebody else was working on in process, and you could adjust for it, you know, midstream. And so that that also helped a lot. And I really like the approach of having it all pulled together like that. That being said, though, I definitely see benefits for splitting things up and having specific responsibilities and smaller sections of code to be tested too. So I, I've seen it work both ways. I think it just depends on your approach. Well, those, yeah. I mean, if you don't break it up, then, I mean, your builds get incredibly long, right? Again, it's a matter of size. So depending on the size of the organization, this what what I'm describing as the threat to the mono the repo approach is more significant and the technology you need to bring to bear to manage it becomes more significant as you have a bigger organization and mm -hmm. more people working on what are really essentially different projects that are all thrown into a single repo. And Google obviously has this problem in spades and they have you know, massively parallel infrastructure under there somewhere that uh, manages to get the build to complete in one time, in a reasonable time. Um, as as you've taken that out to this to smaller projects, your startups, um, is that less of a problem because simply because of scale or because you brought technology to the party? Um, I think you have to bring a little bit of technology, right? Like the uh, in Circle CI. Uh, for now, we actually at Scroll have kind of a single mega build, um, but we're just now starting to look at uh, trying to split that into a bunch of parallel builds to keep uh, the time down. And also because you sort of conceptually want to start thinking of it as a bunch of 
little projects that just happen to live in the same neighborhood. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're just starting to figure it out, but build time is honestly not a big issue for us. And, um, and I would actually counter that it's much, my greater fear is um, a world in which people feel like they can't change all of the code, um, especially at the startup. There's a tendency, I think, for people to sort of specialize in what they know best and leave the other parts as almost immutable. Um, and I think splitting into repositories almost furthers that. Um, and I've heard horror stories about, you know, large companies where people can't get access to certain repos and things like that. Uh, and so I worry a lot about those anti-patterns um, sort of more than um, CI times necessarily. Well, that's a great point. And I'll, um, yeah, I'll tie that into some of my experience, too, because I mean, I, I, that's a great point. That is, I guess what I'm suggesting is that uh, in order to reap that benefit, uh, it's worth applying energy to conquering the long CI times that prevent you from merging changes. The counterforce, <laughs> the counterforce that I'm getting at here is that you're you're trying to do some work, you're trying to accomplish something, and because of the process that's necessary, it can take very long times for your work to make it from a, a master from a branch that you're ready to go with to mm -hmm. actually arriving in master, right? Because master is the thing. And you want to get your stuff in there and other people may be waiting for your stuff. But if, if all of the encumbrance of the CI process and gets in the way, then you can't iterate as fast as you'd like is what am I, in other words, that's the counterforce. How do I iterate? How do I keep the iteration speed up mm -hmm. um, while achieving these other benefits that you described of making, you know, keeping people from being siloed and making sure that everything works across the board. Yeah. And so have you worked with a setup where, uh, you know, people, the branches automatically run CI on circle or whatever it is um, as mm -hmm. people are developing? Um, so I'd argue that as long as people are committing frequently enough, as long as people are using feature flags and constantly working in master, uh, the probability that you're going to at any point be blocked on the CI um, diminishes significantly, right? Like, you'll have a change that's so small. You're, you're, if your change is green when you start working on it, it's likely to be green when you finish working on it, um, I guess would be my argument. And so uh, you're unlikely to be held up by like a constant, you know, constantly shifting sands that keep turning your build red just as you're about to land it. I wish that was my experience. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And, and that's just its size. Um, yeah. uh, not only does it get... Not only in my experience am I seeing um, long, uh, we have to work very hard to make sure that only when we make certain changes that we're not rerunning the world, mm -hmm. but uh, we also have to make sure that other people who put things in don't change things we weren't expecting to change and have it go sideways. Again, I'm, this is not an argument against monorepo when I'm uh, at, in the least. All right. All I'm suggesting is that um, there are friction points that come in um, and maybe you've uh, succeeded in getting them, um, getting at those in your world. So I just wanted to I just I just wanted to raise that one as an experience point. Um, and I, um, I'll give you another experience point that gives me some pause, which is that when you're developing, it's great that everybody's all in one place. But when you're trying to develop something and you don't want to, you have to go through gatekeepers to get it in the master so you don't break everybody else, right? right. And when you're just reiterating on something in your own little world, you don't have to ask anybody's permission. Um, 
And um, so how do you, you know, so they're, at, you know, at, in, in the process in which I'm experiencing the mono repo, there's, there's this gatekeeper process um, and it protects the whole code base. But at the same time, it's in a layer of bureaucracy. And I don't know, do you have this problem or how do you cope with it? We've been reviewing every piece of code before it's allowed to land in master. Um, you know, we've been re using reviewable, which we really love. Um, and it's been fine. I, I, you know, it's sort of a one trick pony, I guess. I really believe in, in the smallest possible change being landed on master. And so everybody on our team commits multiple times a day to master. Uh, and it, all of the changes as much as possible are really small, especially using the feature flag trick. Um, and so in that world, yeah, there is this bureaucracy, but again, hopefully it's not um, holding you up too much. Uh, and I think, you know, the flip side of that is that when your change lands, you can feel really confident that you didn't break anybody who depends on you and that you're going to have to revisit this change, you know, a month from now or something like that. Yeah, no, that's the great side of it. But you're telling me that you don't get into situations in which you have, which you have rather routinely changes across 200 files? Uh, as a result of refactoring or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, we do have those. Um, and, you know, occasionally you will hit a conflict. But for the most part, um, you know, as long as you're careful to sort of uh, try to move really quickly on landing those as soon as you have them ready, um, and you sort of press people to be like, I need to land this because it's going to be annoying to constantly rebase, um, that has, has worked fine in my experience. And actually, that's one thing that I've found in, in so I've, over the past nine months or so, I've tried a bunch of different configurations. Um, you know, we're, we're focused on talking a little bit about monorepo here, but, um, you know, I, I've, I've tried from the other end of the spectrum, you know, many, many small, tiny packages to kind of like groups of packages and that type of thing. And one constant is something you guys are touching on now, which is much of the pain involved with um, dev processes, you know, uh, goes away to some degree when you are really stringent about keeping your PRs really small, as small as as specific as possible, and trying to get them in quickly. Um, so the thing that Kushal is talking about, um, if regardless of whether you're using a monorepo or not, that can actually benefit you know greatly. Um, when you do that, there's just a lot more flexibility you can add to your tooling of like how you handle all those changes. And to be honest, I think that it almost doesn't matter. I've seen, when, as I've been interviewing different people with their different setups, and they all have encountered the same types of problems, as long as you are kind of trying to keep your changes, you know, small and specific and, and in, uh, implemented quickly, um, there's usually a tooling that you can apply at some level to alleviate any of the other pains that go along with, you know, uh, regardless of, of what your setup is. Well, I think, I mean, I think I agree. I seem to be contesting this, but I'm really not. What I'm highlighting, what I'm trying to highlight is that, because then we could talk about all the problems that occur when you have separate repos, <laughs> which you guys have alluded to. But you're going to have to make an investment there is what I guess I'm getting at. It's not like magic. If, in other words, if you're in a world with multi-repos and you say, wow, this mono-repo thing, what happens when I put everything in one place? I'm suggesting <laughs> that uh, that transition has its pain points and it does concentrate your attention for a while on, okay, how are we going to do this in a way that we don't kill, that, that we get the kind of productivity we want? Because everybody has been operating heretofore in this separate with this world of separate silos.
I'd love to hear more actually about what tools you're using to not run the world, just to kind of compare with what we've been doing. Well, we're using Circle CI. We have various. There also seem, and again, I don't know this deeply. I can, I should probably um, preface this by saying, I do a lot of work in the Angular repo. I'm, in, I've been working on documentation for Angular, and we had a separate repo for for well over a year for Angular IO, which was the name for some reason, documentation. And in this year, we. Um, uh, merged that into Angular, 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 and brought the entire documentation in. And there have been tremendous benefits from that, but there has been some pain. And so and it has put some pressure on the processes. So, for example, if you're sitting there writing documentation, right, it's you're used to being able to <laughs> make those changes and add that stuff right away. And because of all the documentation has code involved and so forth, that should work. But we now have to fit in so that the people who can approve a change to master make sure, first of all, they had to make sure that whatever we were doing wasn't clobbering the code base, the real Angular code base. I mean, we're documentation. We're not supposed to touch the code. It's really bad if we touch the code because the whole world out there um, would be at risk of our touching Angular and we're not authorized to touch Angular, right? So we, there's some kind of um, apparatus in there that, that detects when we're playing in our little playpen, our little directory within the repo. And as long as we stay there, it's safe and we can keep doing things and, and get them merged quickly. And it prevents us from accident. And by the way, it's very easy to accidentally step out and crush something else, right? Somebody else's stuff to tread into to angular source code itself for example and make a change there completely unintentionally and so we need technology in there to detect that and say no 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 your pr is stepping outside of the bounds see what i mean and and so i i don't know exactly what we have that does that what do you have that helps people you know in terms of ways of guardrails from not accidentally stepping outside of the project uh, great question. I think for us, probably the the guardrails are just the reviewers. Uh, so I guess you guys have a little more of a who's watching the watchmen situation. Uh, but I think for us, it's, you know, it's just that if every change getting reviewed means that uh, to some extent, there's a human check on that. Um, I'm not sure if you can, but certainly I know that reviewable and fabricator both offer sort of a wide range of configuration options. And I can imagine a world in which you could sort of programmatically keep people from landing changes that didn't have that level of approval. We, we do have that. I mean, there's wet, somehow they've taught, I think, you know, like Google, everybody writes their own stuff. So it's hard to mm -hmm. say what the, the name yeah, of yeah. something is because at Google, as far as I can tell, you know, what we write ourselves is always better than what any of the rest of the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just axiomatic. <laughs> uh, but, um, and I, I kid cause I love, um, so, so, but there's a lot of tapping into the GitHub webhooks there somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that process is, but there are there are guardrails, and that actually helps the caretaker, the the reviewers, right? I mean, you open one of these things up, like, like in documentation, we'll touch hundreds of files. It's really, you know, asking a caretaker to watch to see that we stayed inside the bio, colored inside the line. It's, it's tough. 
So I think it's reassuring. Let's put it this way. It's reassuring to have some technology that says, okay, you know, this person is associated with these sets of boundaries. And if they want to step outside of the boundaries, they're going to have to get some other person who understands the code that that's outside of the lines to join in approving that PR. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just wondered if you had anything in line for that. And I'm just, I think for our audience, they need to understand this, that as their, or if their organization is big, um, this would be something they would have to think about. Does that make sense? Or am I just. Uh, that makes total sense. It's just a problem I haven't necessarily had to wrestle with, except at the, you know, in a Google scenario where there's a bunch of tooling designed specifically for that. So um, does anyone else have suggestions along those lines? Like Jeff, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. So for us, it's not quite the same because it sounds like you will often put in changes where you'll change like hundreds of files at the same time. Um, and that's just hard to review. Like uh, there's just challenges there that like, like if we saw uh, one of our developers do that, our first reaction would be like, don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but, but it makes sense for documentation because you guys, you are probably changing. Like if you changed a header, you're probably doing it across like tons of files and whatever. Um, but okay, let, let's just for for let, let's get outside the uh, documentation example for a second. And if you're if you're doing just uh, in the typical example, you have you know let's say multiple apps, uh, maybe multiple front end apps. Maybe if you have microservices, you might have multiple back end apps. Uh, you might have some shared code, ba code base um, se sections of shared code base. And the uh, the key in my mind is to really be uh, careful about. Um, you know, what you're doing. Is this a change where you are just bumping version numbers, for example, like, which is actually a pretty frequent thing that happens for us. Like you're okay. It, all, all that's happening is we're moving to the next, latest version of Mongoose or whatever. Or is this something where you're actually changing business logic and don't try to mix the two. And, and that gets hard at times. Like there, it takes a lot of discipline to not um, mix those together. Um, and then you, you run into other issues, and, and this is where you know we, we can maybe talk about uh, besides kind of refactoring some of the other issues and challenges that occur with um, you know multiple repos uh, like versioning. So you know when you when you do have things separated out and you're relying on versions between um, mm -hmm. different items, one of the big issues is um, are you when you change a downstream dependency, you basically have to make a choice. Are you going to force at the same time all the upstream dependencies to change like in that moment? Or are you going to allow the downstream dependency to get pushed in and released and then the upstream dependencies just have to up upgrade whenever they get the opportunity? Either one of those um, requires you know, some effort. You know, if, you, if, you do, um, if you just push it in and don't change all the upstream dependencies, then you essentially have to manage uh, multiple versions uh, potentially of the same downstream dependency. And if you force everybody else upstream to update, then there's just like this overhead, um, especially with multiple repos that occurs with bubbling up that change. Um, and then that's it somewhat gets alleviated with mono repos um, because you obviously have access to everything at once. Um, but, but we definitely, before we had certain tooling in place, that was definitely very painful um, for you, when you have a, like a lot of smaller repos. Does that make sense? It, it's painful when you have a lot of smaller repos because they can all go their own ways. 
it's also painful for the mono repo. Like if you say, all right, everybody, we're going to Webpack 3. I mean, like everybody's on board all at once, right? Oh, yeah. Or, or, or <laughs> you don't, oh, this, this new version of TypeScript. I hope everybody's all ready because here we go. And like other people have their priorities and they got to stop. Or, or do you, have you guys finessed that? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think I've seen, and Kashal, you can let me know what you do, but I, I think I've seen what I've read from different big multi, multi, mono repo um, implementations that uh, a lot of them end up like that. Yeah, you you kind of all have to move in sync for some of that stuff. But do, do you, uh, Kushal, do you have a way of of allowing different people to uh, upgrade some of those dependencies at different times? Yeah, that that is definitely the the hard one. Like, um, <laughs> I, 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 the only way I've ever seen it done is a really brutal, you know, all nighter by somebody who has to sit there and get everything working. Uh, which is awful. And hopefully the number of those things is infrequent enough that it's just, it, you kind of deal with the consequences. Um, you know, obviously the upside is that us. you know that. <laughs> yeah. It happens daily for us. Yeah. It's like, our, yeah. oh, there's a new version of, and not only that, but we have different things in different flights, right? So yeah, we've got the I mean, product and then you've got the new, you got the new, the where you're going and then there's the one you got to maintain and the one you got to maintain is pinned at one thing and the one place where you're going to go <laughs> is something is going to use the new stuff which can yeah. be external dependencies and internal uh, breaking changes. And it's like, wow, how do I manage this? This is hard anyway. Yeah. I think, but now you, you know, make I it hard really, for everybody. The, the Golang guys wrote something really interesting. Like maybe, a, I don't know. I just saw it a week ago. I don't know where it came out. But um, about how, you know, one of the things that Google does is they've developed a lot of patterns around how to refactor code and why they need type defs in order to make that easier. Um, so I think there's some code level things you can do to try to insulate yourself if you're making some really insane internal refactor. Um, but yeah, some of those bigger depths, you just kind of you just kind of have to uh, rip off the bandaid, and it's hard. There's no question. Now, one solution that I've seen that actually is kind of cool and interesting that is on the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Monorepo is uh, you know our friend, which I think uh, most of you guys you guys on the show know, uh, Dr. Gleb Bamatov. Um, mm -hmm. who's been, been a frequent Angular speaker and podcast speaker and everything. So he um, is a huge fan of open source, smaller repos, um, you know, a lot of the, the mentality of uh, keeping things small and separate and distinct. And what he's done is, like, he recognizes a lot of the problems that we're talking about today, but he's decided that he's just he's going to stick in the kind of many repo universe and just create tooling to solve like some of these these things. And so for versioning, even though like I was saying, it was very painful for me, and, and I was talking to him about this. Um, he actually has I don't remember off the top of my head, but I'll include a link in the uh, show notes for this. He has like a series of little tools that he's created to like deal with this. And so for the versioning thing, for example, what he does is he runs um, this server that just basically is is in charge for all of his open source projects. All it does is whenever it detects that a new version has been um, published, it will automatically try to update it and run all the tests. And if it passes, then it just checks in the update and then um, publishes it for that upstream dependency. Now, that only works if you actually have really good tests, which I mean, that's a whole other subject, but um, assuming that you do, um, 
it actually can be kind of elegant because then you could just change that downstream dependency and you don't have to like worry about like bubbling it up like that sort of happens in the background. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting solution to at least part of this problem. Yeah, another interesting thing that brings up is sort of the issue of, yeah, it's great that if you have different repos, you can move differently in terms of dependencies. But if you're now out of sync, you may suddenly have incompatible sort of transitive dependencies across all of what you're doing. Uh, and that is a much worse <laughs> situation to be in. I oh, would that's argue. A, it's very hard to get out of that. That's a yeah. certainty. That's a dead certainty. Yeah. So they, they <laughs> so it's a question of when you want to deal with the problem. Um, in a mono repo, you just face into it and everybody's got to face into it at the same time. Um, with a multi-repo, you can put off that horrible moment and possibly get yourself into a deep hole um, because you're you're not forced to re you know co cope with it until perhaps you know, when it's much more painful. But it does, in the short term, free you from somebody else's um, crusade to move to Webpack 3. <laughs> One thing that I, I also want to add in here, when we're talking about get out of sync, there are actually two ways you can get out of sync. And you're talking about dependencies where, yeah, I'm pulling in Webpack 3, everything else is set up for Webpack 2, you know, bad, pain, pain, bad, because it's all in the same repo. Um, the other way that, you know, with the multi-repo that you can get out of sync, though, is not just in the dependencies in the build process, but the APIs. So if you have a module that you're working on over here, and hey, we're going to move to this cleaner API. Well, whatever's consuming it on the other side, you know, as a driver, well, we didn't get around to updating that yet. And so when you go to build it, it doesn't talk properly. And so you can get out of sync that way too with multiple repos. And so you have to make sure that you're communicating in both of those instances. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. You can replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files and having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. It has full support for JavaScript and all other major languages and platforms. It takes less than 10 minutes to set up and you can get a free 14-day trial by going to raygun.com and signing up today. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, that reminds me of one other thing. Um, in addition to the getting out of sync with the backend API, um, one like big issue that we ran into, um, which actually forced us to realize that we couldn't or we didn't want to keep things out of sync, and, and now we have a process where we keep everything in sync at the same time, um, is because specifically of Angular DI. So, like in our in our front end, we have multiple apps. We have you know a native like native script. Um, uh, app and we have you know uh, multiple web apps and we have some shared libraries, some shared component libraries, some other you know libraries that um, have ng modules that are pulled in by those different Angular apps. And um, one thing that uh, ran into is that with DI, if you aren't actually using the same version, um, you run into DI issues because it's not actually like with DI, it has to be the exact same thing at every level or else, you know, the injection mm -hmm. token is different. So mm -hmm. uh, that that was like, before we realized what was going on, that was like a couple days of like super annoying, like what the, why is this not working? <laughs> um, <laughs> before, I think we actually even had to debug into like Angular core to like see that like one token was different than the other and we we're like, oh, okay. Um, so now for, for that reason, we, we are very stringent about keeping all versions in sync. That makes sense. <sighs> It does. So um, 
By the way, I'm going to reiterate at several points that I like the mono repo. So we're, we're going to and uh, we're going to circle back to that. I'm not going to let the show go without my giving a thumbs up to it. But I just <laughs> uh, I, I want to make some other observations about what what you're uh, what you're facing um, uh, by asking. Well, first of all, I'll give an observation, then I'll ask the question. So uh, what I've noticed is that members of the Angular team often create, they explore new things in their own private repos. All right. Even if it's an, uh, uh, let's assume it's an authorized project, which it usually is. But, the, you know, they may want to say, hey, I'm developing a new HTTP way to do the HTTP module. We're going to have a complete successor to that. Well, the first place that I see that that happens is usually in somebody's private, one of the developer's own private repos, not in the primary repo. And only later do they bring it in. Um, my other example of that is we had a debate about we were going to build a new doc viewer for uh, Angular Docs. Um, there was a force that wanted to create that as a separate repo and iterate over it and bring it in later versus develop it from scratch inside the mono repo. So what do you guys do if you're about to venture into a new something or other? Um, do you develop that new something within um, the mono repo, or do you first uh, kick it around to iterate quickly in some other repo and then promise to bring it in? I can tell you that I. it depends on to some degree. If there are a lot of dependencies or shortcuts I can take by relying on the mono repo, I will do it in the mono repo. So, for example, if there's something else in there that I can take advantage of, or you know, it, it auto loads the correct libraries for me automatically, and I don't have to do a whole lot of setup, and it saves me that effort. A lot of times, it'll go in the mono repo. But if it's small and independent, and it's going to move quickly, then a separate repo may be the right answer. Yeah, I think if it's something that you're likely to actually want to land, there are a lot of benefits to doing it in the mono repo, um, especially if you can control it with feature flags. Um, you know, you have the benefit of sort of reviewing as you go instead of trying to review a giant PR, uh, you know, that is going to make your eyes glaze over. Uh, and it also allows you to sort of keep up with and for others to keep up with you in terms of uh, breaking API changes rather than having some sort of brutal merge or you being surprised by somebody or you surprising somebody else. You know, I think if it's truly, truly speculative, you know, obviously it's, it's fair to be off in a branch or your own copy of the repo or whatever. Just, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I usually do it a separate repo. Just, um, I, I, I guess, sort of along the lines of some of the reasoning that you're mentioning, Ward, for the Angular team. Like, I mean, for, for us, it's, it, it, I guess it is a difference, like Chuck was saying, of is this like kind of an experimental thing or is this just like a new feature? Um, because if it is, we all the time, like almost every week, we're creating new, like separate small repos just for like experimental stuff that um, we're, we're trying out. And, and a lot of that is because, and, and this is even if we are using reuse, even if we have to copy over some code from the main repo just to get it working, um, I, we found that like it, it disturbs people less. Like um, there, there's a whole thing. I mean, I know that there's ways to like kind of um, quiet. Um, the updates so that you only get kind of uh, notified of changes in certain parts of um, a repo. But I, I think uh, it, it's there's a lot of people on our team who do want to just see like in the main repo, like see everything that occurs um, because we're still a relatively small team. Um, so they appreciate when something is just like experimental and it may not even land, like it, it, it may just be totally throwaway. Um, just 
do it somewhere else and then kind of bring it over once it's a little bit fully baked, just for the, if nothing else, for the sake of alleviating some of the notifications that go on um, with everybody else. Yeah, that's a good point. The whole notification thing is definitely not a solved problem, <laughs> especially with GitHub, which seems to have not spent a lot of time trying to make that powerful. Um, we've built a lot of sort of custom Slack hooks in order to try to get notifications tailored to the parts that you care about. Yeah, good yeah. point. So, so my observation, is, Jeff and you guys, is that you know, from what I hear, it is when you have a very small team, it can make like one person or two people. Then the separate repo can often be the great place to experiment with it. Um, we had a debate. Um, when we started the Angular documentation, new doc viewer thing, we ended up deciding, which is to say Igor decided, that it would be done in a mono repo. And that was painful at the beginning, but ended up, I think, being a good decision. It was painful at the beginning because of all why? the things that you said. Why was it a good decision or why was it painful in the beginning? Both. Um, it was painful in the beginning because we were slowed down by having to figure out how to fit it in to everybody else's process um, because it was going to be in master, right? And um, how do we make sure that that uh, we're developing in such a way that we don't just have to wait for everybody else to have the approval process or, or how do we keep it? Uh, because it was really almost a thing unto itself. How do we keep from triggering all, all the other CI processes and just focus on the ones that matter? Um, it was y y those things have to be worked out as you develop a new project but there were enough of us and there were enough and uh, the reason it turned out to be a good idea was that there were enough of us uh, who were involved that we were going to pretty soon have to have all that uh, process that you actually have in a mono repo to make people work together well right that's one of the things you share that we didn't mention when you have a mono maybe we did mention and um we didn't I, i'm just bringing attention back to it, because it may actually have been one of your original benefits of a monorepo, which is that you get consistency of process across the whole thing. And we got that. Consistency of tooling, consistency of everything that you eventually are really going to want. It's right there. That's a real plus. The other thing was that we were able to share our results and get other people involved when it was part of the monorepo, which is harder to do people outside you know our initial scope was just us developing the thing but we could seamlessly uh decide when it was time or as it was time to bring in the rest of the angular team and the rest of the angular community to look at our work and to participate in it because it was in a mono repo which would have been uh, much harder if it had been a separate repo and then the third benefit is that the work that we're doing in our project actually intersects Angular itself and is intended to be a series of tests against Angular itself. There is that whether the doc viewer works or not and whether the tests on our samples work or not is one of the ways we know whether Angular itself works or not. And so um, the benefit of getting that into the larger mono repo as early as possible uh, um, was right there. They were getting, we were getting the feedback on the larger product of Angular itself quicker by developing our documentation viewer and all that other stuff inside the mono repo. Um, and 
I suspect that, um, you know, I think that goes back to the original value points that you guys were pointing out, which is when everybody's in the same playpen, you find out real fast whether um, something that you're doing, you know, where the, all the points intersect, whether something you're doing over in that corner of the room affects somebody um, in the other room, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's actually, you know, leading into a point that I kind of wanted to bring up with monorepos. So pretty early in my career, we worked on a monorepo. This was in Rails, but, uh, you know, I think it's applicable here. And we wound up writing this huge, what was termed a monorail at the time, which is a huge, you know, monolithic application. And the problem we ran into was that everything was tightly coupled. And so everything anybody did affected everybody else. And, you know, you're talking about kind of the virtues of that ward where it's, you know what, you know, we make a change and then we can see if it works with everything else. And I think that's highly valuable. But if things are highly coupled and it makes it hard for you to change the repo and it's easy to fall into that trap with a mono repo, um, you know, how do you deal with that? I mean, of course, our next iteration of that application, we went totally over to service oriented architecture and had exactly the the reverse of the problem. So I've seen it both <laughs> ways. So, but, but yeah, I mean, how do you work it out so that things aren't so tightly coupled that you making a change to the code in the repo, you know, affects the, the guy sitting next to you working on something that really isn't too tightly related to it. I think the, the most important thing that I've brought everywhere uh, with me is the, is the organization of your code into a DAG. Um, I guess I've been doing it so long. A I almost DAG. take it for granted, but I realized that a lot of people, haven't directed had that experience. Directed acyclic graph is what you mean by a DAG? Exactly. So that there are no circular dependencies between your packages, even transitively. Um, and if you can add something to your CI that enforces that, um, you know, and in the you know, as a monorepo grows, you may eventually have tooling that requires that um, for for your build system. Um, by having that requirement, uh, it forces your code to be clean. It really makes you think about. Is this layer supposed to even know this layer exists? You know, can this layer uh, have this type of functionality, or does it need to be moved into a new package? Um, and having to think about that, I think, is like almost uh, is totally necessary to have a monorepo. Otherwise, you will definitely end up with a mess. A plus one hundred for that. I think you're right. Not, um, you have to do that in order to survive in a monorepo, and it means that it improves your architecture. So, so how exactly do you do this? Because I'm not sure I completely visualize what this looks like. So I can give you the exact example of what we're doing. Um, so we're working in Java. Um, and we have sort of, you know, a classic thing where there's a user and there's an organization. And then there's like an object that a user creates that points back to a user and organization. Um, and so we have, a, we, have some, we have a Java check that makes sure that the DAG is enforced. And then as like a soft rule, we've said... Um, you know, this object that users and organizations create can know about users and organizations, and organizations can know about users, but users can never depend back into organizations or back into these objects. So you can draw out a tree of what knows about what. Um, and then we also have the same thing at sort of a, at a vertical slicing thing. So you can think about sort of the, um, like the layered model of networking, right? So we have um, the, the pure data model objects are not allowed to know anything about the service layer that interacts with the database. The database uh, can know about those model objects but shouldn't know anything about the web tier. Uh, the web tier can obviously know about both the model objects and the service tier because it utilizes both of those. Um, and so you kind of build up these sort of intersecting layer cakes of, uh, of things that are allowed to know about one another. 
Gotcha. Is that is that defined within like config files? Like what is the actual relationships? Like how are those defined? Um, so the I think the ideal is that this is defined um, in sort of build files. And so if you look at Pants or Blaze um, or uh, Buck, you know, all those build systems have um, explicit dependency configurations so that you can sort of keep any of those uh, invariants from being broken um, on like kind of a pairwise basis. Um, for us, uh, we're not quite there yet. So we're just, we just have like a wiki page that lists out the rules. And then we have a test that just looks for any cycles in any package dependencies. Um, on the in the Java world, there's a pretty easy way to kind of add it to your um, to it to just like a JUnit test. Um, and so if you do that, then that's kind of your backstop against somebody screwing up and nobody catching it in code review. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's cool. One thing that uh, we did create, which uh, probably should open source at some point because it's not proprietary at all per se, um, is basically a, a little CLI tool that walks um, down uh, all, all subdirectories from wherever you're running it finds like all of your package so like we, we do all javascript so both front end and back end um so there's there's everything has like a package json so finds all the package json's like in, in your all your subdirectories and then kind of like creates the dependency graph like for those um but then also sees where the git repos are so like for us um we haven't fully moved to one mono repo um but we did start to consolidate so we have a couple uh, kind of larger repos um and so like the large repos have like a bunch of like npm modules within it and so this tool will see the dependency graph for all the npm modules and then also see the dependencies between the repos based off of the npm module uh dependencies um so yeah we use that for uh yeah build stuff and, and actually a variety of other things for um doing kind of like bulk changes uh among the different modules and repos. That reminds me, I guess we should uh, reassure people that just because you have one role, you can have multiple, in, you're, you can be reproducing multiple NPM packages out of a single mono repo. Angular itself is that way. Mm -hmm. All of Angular is in there, but you go at Angular slash core, at Angular slash common. Each of those is its own NPM package, even though all the source code is one place. I, I that may seem ob an obvious point, but it wasn't obvious to me, and it, and I couldn't tell you how to do it exactly, but I know that we do it. So are there other trade-offs? Huh? One other thing that I'm wondering about here is um, I, I see people, you know, we're, we're kind of talking like multi-repo or monorepo, and, you know, is it one or the other, or can you have like a couple of, uh, like a multi-monorepo where you have several <laughs> large ones instead of, I, I don't know how exactly to explain it, but you know, where you're not breaking it up so far that there's a ton of stuff to keep track of in a bunch of different places. And at the so, same so, time, you're not having some of the issues that come up with doing everything in the same place. Yeah, so one thing that we're trying out now, and it's not perfect, um, is to have one, like, quote-unquote, like, I guess I shouldn't call it a monorepo, one larger repo that basically has all of our non-deployable code. So, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff we have for just different um, libraries of different sorts, stuff that aren't isn't an app by itself or isn't an API endpoint or whatever. Um, and then we have a separate set of repos, a couple, just a handful of them for the actual uh, deployable code. And th this is really because we just haven't made the jump where um, you know Kushal has, has 
is kind of advocating for using some of these build tools like the like uh, there's Bazel too, which I don't think uh, we mentioned yet um, from from Google, um, which is a version of their kind of internal tool uh, build tool that they use. Uh, and you can use these things, and I, I am eventually going to try those out. But for now, at least, it is easier, like from a building tool perspective, to have like one quote unquote deployable per repo. Um, so we'll, we'll have like one just app for a given repo, and then you know, and then the bigger thing that has all the shared code uh, in another thing. And and that's at least alleviating you know some of the pain. It's not. It's definitely not perfect. Um, but there, there is, to your point, Chuck, there is a middle ground for sure of different options that I've seen. Yeah, another thing that I've, I haven't seen a really great solution for is when you want to open source a portion of what you're doing, but mm -hmm. not obviously your entire company's code base. Uh, and so in that scenario, I think there's really no way out of having a separate repo for that. Um, and then I've seen places where the code is just copied from one to the other, um, or you could do the actual work of trying to factor out sort of the common code and then factor out the thing you're really trying to open source. Yeah, Kushal, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I forgot about that. That was like one of the biggest points that uh, Gleb made up when he was kind of like touting the uh, the smaller repo that it, it's almost like a, when you think about that part of things, it's almost like a cultural thing, too. It's like, do you want to encourage your team and, and what you're building to be open sourced or not? Uh, I mean, it's not saying that you can't do that when you have a monorepo. There's different ways to do it. Angular, obviously, uh, Google obviously does it, um, it with different ways. But uh, the people that do are on the side, like the Gleb side of the fence, who are, like, are very much into like, no, no, we're doing everything in kind of these smaller repos. It is much more of a culture of like, no, no, like why wouldn't you open source things? Like, it's all, like, almost like an open source first mentality. Um, so there is like a cultural element there as well. To clarify, I think uh, um, at, at Google, um, there's this giant internal repo, because not everything that they have is open source, and Angular is open source. So that's at least one driver, if not, I don't know if it's the only driver, but it's one driver for why Angular is in a public GitHub repo, because it's a public project, and Google has its own, and then they have, a they have an ongoing reconciliation process because Google uses so much of Angular. Uh, but that's why we couldn't have one. That's at least one reason why there isn't one giant Google repo and Angular is inside it, because that it's that's not it's not all Google is not open source, from what I can see. Yeah, and and I think it is cultural too, because some companies they want sort of the open collaboration and free support, I guess, from the community and upgrades from the community, and then other companies see that they're giving away some kind of competitive advantage that they're not willing to give up. And I don't know that either of them is wrong. It just depends on the way you look at things. Yeah, definitely. And right. you can look at things both ways. <laughs> I yeah. mean, there's, there's every reason to believe that you have your own stuff and then the stuff you want to make public. And it does it isn't necessary that a, co a company should decide to be all one or the other. Yeah. Well, no, no, I think that's true. But it's something to be said for like what, which of those is a first class citizen within your organization. So it's not it's not that you're preventing it per se. Um, but there is a slight cultural difference in which you see as kind of like the top of mind. Yeah, that's true. So let's take up as we're about to, it sounds like we're ready to close it, but, but are we all, so where does everybody stand? I'm, I'm raising my hand saying that the balance, the needle points to mono repo. Uh, and I would not have said that last year, uh, but I'm feeling that despite my, my throwing darts at it and all that, my net experience is that I've ended up liking the mono repo, and I, I would say that the audience ought to 
give it serious consideration. I would like to uh, ask a qualifying question on this discussion. <laughs> and that is, do you feel like, or you, Ward, who's saying you're in favor of it, and I don't know that I've explicitly heard it, but I assume that our guests are also saying the same thing. Do you feel like it's true that monorepo is better in all cases? Well, uh, Joe, first of all, I wouldn't, uh, don't make the assumption that I am agreeing. Kushal, definitely, he's he's all in. <laughs> he's all in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but on my side, I, I see the benefits and I, I like, I, I recognize that there's a number of organizations that have successfully implemented it, but I, I don't see it as like a perfect solution per se. And actually, the other thing that bothers me is that I don't feel like there is something where like, okay, I'm a new organization and I'm going to do monorepo. Uh, you know, how am I going to, how am I going to do that? It seems as though, well, there are a lot of organizations that do it. There isn't an easy way for someone to just like, it's not like common knowledge and there's not like a, a well-known set of tooling and best practices of like, this is how you do it. Um, you know, Kashal has a lot of experience and has seen, I'm, I'm sure you, you told me before Kashal, some of like the bad implementations and some, some like issues that, that people have had. And I think in your current environment, you've kind of like pulled the best of, of all worlds. Um, what I would like to see, and, and sort of one of the reasons why I'm like really interested in this topic and, uh, you know, speaking here, speaking at, um, the, the upcoming conference and everything is to like bring forth kind of like this, this problem that I really believe that most of us deal with. Most of us uh, are working in environments where we run into this issue one way or another in whatever our current repo and, and code setup is. And so trying to like rally everybody behind understanding what the problem is and then um, you know, converging on a better set of you know, practices and, and conventions and tools and stuff like that. And I think that at some point, um, you know, there is stuff out there for sure, um, but I, I think that there, there still is a lot to go to get to the point where it's like a no-brainer where like this isn't even a discussion. It's just like, okay, everybody knows how to do this the right way. And I think when we get there, I still don't think it'll be one specific solution because there's the cultural thing. There's a couple other things with specifically how your environment is set up and like what works best for you. But I do think that we can get to the point where once you decide culturally and and, and uh, because of what you're trying to build, like what is going to work best for you, that, that it's very clear how to kind of implement that in the best way. Um, whereas right now, I, I don't think that's the case. I think my, my answer would be for my own personal stuff. I don't know how to do a mono repo, so I would, I can't, I can't, I can't. So therefore I wouldn't have one, but if I was an organization or, and starting or starting an organization, I would go figure out how to do it. And I would want my organization to have a mono repo. I, I would have to say, it's funny because, you know, Ward said, if you'd asked me last year, I wouldn't have said monorepo. And that's generally where I wind up is whichever one seems to solve the problems that I've most recently had to deal with. <laughs> so I probably go back and forth over the years. But I, I would say that I tend to lean toward monorepo, but I don't always do it either. So I, I think I think I really just kind of wind up where I wind up. And the other caveat that I would put in there is even if I start with a monorepo, that doesn't mean that's where I'm going to end. And I think a lot of times people get kind of wound up on, well, what if I make the wrong decision? 
And the answer is, is if you put them all in separate repos and it turns out, you know what, we kind of need the benefits of having this all in the same place, you can do that. You can move them all into one repo. And the same with having a mono repo. It may not be easy. Um, it may be kind of a thorny problem, depending on how big and complicated you make your mono or, you know, the, the way you tie together your disparate repos. But you can switch. So if you're finding that one isn't working for you, you can start moving toward the other setup. But yeah, I tend to lean toward monorepo, but I'm not just going to say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm always going to do it that way. Hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm all in. <laughs> I, I think the only times I wouldn't do it are um, if I truly were building a bunch of disparate open source projects and I really wanted them to play in the open source ecosystem and that was my priority. But I think the... You know, my number one goal in, in sort of all the decisions I make as, as sort of an engineering manager or CTO is always how can my team move as quickly as possible. Um, and I really think the monorepo more than anything um, is optimized for speed, right? Everyone's constantly up to date with the latest code. And sometimes that sucks. But like the net benefit is that everyone's kind of moving together um, rapidly as you start to change how you do things. Um, I do wish the tooling were better. Um, I, I really hope that as more people move to this model, that the tooling will catch up and, you know, Circle CI will support this as a first-class citizen and Reviewable will support this as a first-class citizen and GitHub will. Because um, there still is this notion of multiple deployables that just the tools don't totally appreciate today that it would be nice if they did. Mm -hmm. What about you, Joe? I would be open to it in a large organization. Open to right, what? With some experience, uh, monorepo. You sound very happy about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that applies. I think I see the benefit, but I'm not sure that I personally can see the benefits in a small environment with a few devs, not a lot of experience. I think that the separate repos, it's one of those, it just think, keeps things a little bit simpler for not thinking about them. But I'm definitely... I'm, not sway. I'm not like radically convinced. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. But on the other hand, I can see that uh, this could solve a lot of problems. But but it's basically Joe was saying it's a dumpster fire. <laughs> We're back to that, are we? It's, it's one piece of the dumpster fire. <laughs> All righty. Well, are are there good places for people to go to kind of evaluate where they're at and decide which way they want to go? before we wrap up and go to picks? I mean, we've covered a lot of the trade-offs, but I'm wondering if there are like a set of guidelines online or... Well, so th this is part of the reason why I'm, I'm uh, interested in giving this talk is because I don't... I, there's a bunch of articles for sure. Like, and I, I, I'm going to include some of those articles in the show notes for stuff like on both either side, like pe people who are pro monorepo who kind of um, advocating for that and you know, pro um, multi-repo like people who got burned from it and, and a couple of really interesting articles for that. But I have yet to find one that sets forth like a good mental model, like decision framework almost for like, okay, if you are like this and this and this, then you should use this. Um, I haven't seen that before. And that's sort of what I hope to create in the ne next couple of weeks before this conference. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Angular Dev Summit, coming September 11th through the 18th, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I reached out to some of my friends in the Angular community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Rob Wormald, 
Jeff Welpley, and others coming to speak about all kinds of topics in Angular. So if you're trying to learn Angular or you're trying to level up Angular, come check it out. The talks are happening throughout the day each day and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to angulardevsummit.com. Ward, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I, I just got back from uh, hiking the Sierras. I never give technology picks. Um, and uh, uh, and I did, took, took up fly fishing for the first time in my life, and I caught my first fish ever. Um, and it's catch and release, by the way. So no um, fish were truly harmed in my experiment. Uh, I had a great time, and it was. Uh, I'm putting in a link to a particular place in the Southern Sierras, which is gorgeous, and you should go there. And whether you catch a fish or just hike to it, it's just wow. So uh, that's uh, in the Southern Sierras near um, Mammoth. So I just put a link into it. Nice. All right. I'm going to jump in here with some picks then. So I don't, it's funny because from week to week and the fact that I record three plus shows every week, I can never remember if I picked something last week. So if I repeat picks, I'm real sorry. Um, so I've been going through uh, a couple of things that I've been looking at. And uh, one of them is, is just managing money, both personally and, you know, across the podcast and things. And I ran across a book called Profit First, and they talk about how to allocate your money depending on how much is coming in and, you know, putting certain amounts of it away for a rainy day or for profit or for, you know, paying the owner of the business and things like that. And uh, it's, it's kind of helped me get my head around where things are at and, oh, okay, so I should be setting aside this much more than I'm setting aside for things like taxes and stuff. And so uh, it's been a really helpful book if you're looking at running your own business or um, doing things in a particular way. Um, it just kind of sets up a system so that it's automatic and everything goes where it's supposed to. Um, so uh, that's Profit First. And the author is Mike. Some and He has like a weird German last name that's hard to pronounce. So um, anyway, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And then the, uh, the other thing is... is um, uh, Lucas mentioned last week the ketogenic diet, and I've been uh, jumping on that. And uh, anyway, um, so just to put things out there, if you're diabetic, the way that they measure how sick you are, or one of the ways that they measure it, is by testing your hemoglobin. And there's, uh, um, anyway, the measurement's the A1C, and basically they're measuring how much sugar is on your uh, red blood cells. And, you know, the higher the number, obviously, the, the sicker you are. Um, they want it to be below 7 if you're diabetic, um, or 7.5. I've heard both numbers. And uh, historically, mine has been about a 10. And so it's been really high. 10 is really high. When I was diagnosed, it was 15, which they were looking at me like, okay, you're going to pass out and go into a coma any minute. Um, so anyway, I went to my doctor this morning, and my number was 7.3. So um, it's really been helping me both feel better and um, it's helped me get my diabetes under control. So I'm going to uh, kind of double down on Lucas's pick last week of the ketogenic diet. And finally, the last thing that I'm going to pick is something we all take for granted um, and which I got fixed today upstairs in my house, and that's the air conditioning. Air conditioning makes life very nice. So I'm going to pick air conditioning. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sweet. Uh, Joe, do you have some picks for us? Okay. So I want to pick two things. One is a book I've been reading called Everybody Lies. The subtitle is Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Um, I found this to be extremely uh, fascinating, right? It's this book about how when social scientists are trying to figure out how people behave, they take surveys, they use surveys typically, and we <laughs> lie so effectively to not only other people, but even to ourselves that surveys are very skewed about what ac people actually do and how they behave. That's a lie, Joe. <laughs> uh, for a lot of different reasons. And so his book is a lot about uh, combing the Google's, Google search phrases and basically Google trends to find things out. And he talks a lot about racism in the U.S. and uh, sex in the U.S. and stuff like that. And it's been pretty interesting. In fact, what was really funny was at the very beginning of the book, he talks about how when Google started publishing Google Trends, the, one of the things they said in the publishment, in the announcement was, this is not the type of data that anybody should be writing a PhD thesis on. And he was looking for a PhD thesis and he immediately decided that was what he's going to do is write his PhD thesis on <laughs> Google Trends data. Uh, but it's a fascinating book about uh, a look into humanity and ourselves and our just, I just thought it was just great. So I highly recommend it. Everybody lies. And the other thing I want to uh, pick is if you happen to go to Rome, travel to Rome, you know, sometime during the spring, summer, fall, I highly recommend that you rent a scooter to ride around Rome. It's a crazy, <laughs> wild experience. You end up in oncoming traffic in the, the opposite lane, driving in oncoming traffic, cars coming at you. And like you a learn... Razor? Like a razor or something? What do you yeah, think? Yeah, well, Vespa is kind of a typical. What could be more fun than oh. head-on traffic, Joe? <laughs> and you, you watch what the other scooter riders doing, do, and you see, and all of a sudden this sort of, you know, here in the U.S., our traffic laws are so well-defined, right? You don't, there, there's no uh, vagueness to them at all. And in some places like Rome, there's a lot more vagueness to how traffic actually flows. And you learn to see a beauty and order come out of this chaos. That's just this sort of shared mutual understanding about how we really should drive, regardless of what lines may tell us. And, Joe, uh, I lived in Italy for two years, and I can tell you that their traffic suggestions are just <laughs> as clear as our traffic laws are here. <laughs> So anyway, I had a great time. I thought it was super, super fun. And I never really at any point felt actually in danger. You drive into oncoming traffic and the oncoming traffic knows to move over, over for you. Mm -hmm. They're looking for you. And they move out of the way and you create this third lane. And it also just makes getting around Rome so much easier. You know, Rome has tons of traffic. But if you have a scooter, it's like there's zero traffic. You can get from point A to point B inside of Rome in, you know, just a few minutes never worrying about traffic and it's easy to find a place to park. So I highly recommend not only just for the ease of getting around, but also to the experience of it. Rent a scooter if you get, if you happen to go to Rome. And I, those are my picks. I have to say that I've also seen grandmas load an incredible amount of groceries on a Vespa. <laughs> I'm sure. Anyway, uh, Jeff, what are your picks? Um, yeah, so I just really have one uh, pick. I created a survey actually for this topic. 
and uh, results are not all tabulated yet, but for the conference talk, I will have that as one of the things we will discuss. So I will put the link out there, and it's basically just asking you questions about what you do in your environment. We talked a lot today about uh, uh, what all of us do and some of the advantages and disadvantages, what we don't like and don't like. Uh, so I want to hear from everybody who's listening to this show as well. So I'll include it in the notes, but it's uh, whlp.ly slash survey dash repo. All right. Kashal, what are your picks? Um, so I'm going to, I have one technical one and one non-technical one. Um, the technical one, uh, uh, one of our, one of the people here at Scroll um, passed along an article from sort of a technical leader at the Hillary campaign um, that he wrote while he was there, I think, um, about doing design reviews. Um, I've, I'm pretty familiar with the process where you write a design doc and you share it out and people just come on it. And I'm also pretty familiar with the process where people have a meeting where everyone gets together, the architecture is presented, um, and people try to come up with feedback on the fly. Uh, and neither of those feels super optimal. Um, and I'm really excited to try this process. I have not yet tried it. Um, that's kind of a fusion of the two where you kind of produce a document and do a little bit of pre-work, um, but then actually meet in real life to talk through uh, whether that architecture actually makes sense or not. Um, so really, really intrigued about that. I'm always interested in processes for design review. Um, and then the, the non-technical pick uh, is this book uh, that's pretty old, but I was about to get on a plane, which turned out to be five hours delayed. And fortuitously, my boss recommended this great book um, called The Orphan Master's Son. Uh, and it's very appropriate for current times because it's about a man who lives in North Korea and all of his crazy adventures. Um, and it's just a, it's a really great page turner and totally fascinating. And I highly recommend it. All right. Well, if people want to uh, connect with you or follow you or, you know, see you on Twitter, et cetera, uh, where do they go, Kishal? Um, I'm at Crave with a K, K-R-A-V-E. Um, and I'm also going to make a small plug we can put in the show notes. Um, I wrote a Medium post about the workflow we use in terms of trying to keep people on master and make that as easy as possible. Um, and I'd recommend that anyone trying to do that, uh, take a look at that. All right, and Jeff, how do people find you, follow you, read your blog, et cetera? Hey, you can follow me at Jeff Welpley on Twitter. And actually, I'm going to be publishing a blog post in the next week or so on this topic as well. Um, so you can follow me on Medium at Jeff Welpley as well. I hope we have that uh, link uh, in the show notes. And um, and Kushal, if you, 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 you'll come back with any of your links to this stuff, because I think I think this is an important decision for organizations. Yep. Uh, Jeff, AngularAir is still a thing too, right? People want to go listen to you talk every week? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm, I'm not hosting anymore. Justin Schwarzenberger took over for me and doing a great job. Um, but I do show up from time to time. Uh, I'm actually going to be on next week. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thank you both for coming. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. Yep. We'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.